Morning Door of Hope. I'm Vivian Parker, and I've been a member here for about more than five years. I'll just put it that way, more than five years. I'm glad to be here with you today. And I'm going to be reading the scripture of the uh, message this morning, and it's found in the first chapter of Mark, verses 29 through 34. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Shall we pray? Father, we're so thankful for your word. Thankful that you are our awesome, wonderful loving God and Savior, Lord and King. Thank you, Lord God, that you said, if we believe you, we can do those same things that you did and even more. We just pray that you would bless Pastor Cameron today as he brings the word as you have given it to him. And we give your name honor and praise and glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, hey, it is once again good to be with you. Um, my name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, let's fix that after service. Um, it's really good to be with you. Um, I want to I tee up the passage that, that Vivian read for us uh, with, with two stories that sort of, um, sort, of, sort of share a theme in common that we're going to see as we, as we kind of unpack what's going on here in Mark. Um, and they, the, theme, the theme has to do with this idea uh, that, that there's this, this common sort of illusion that kind of ascetic, extreme self-denial is the heart of Christian spirituality. I don't know if you hold that. I don't know if you've, you've heard that taught. I'm assuming you've, you've at least picked parts of it up somewhere. Um, it's often associated with kind of like a skepticism of, a skepticism of anything that's physical in favor of things that are sort of more ethereal and spiritual and so forth. And I want to be super clear. Of course, Christians are called to deny themselves. It's, it's very clearly the words of Jesus. He said, Christians are called to deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow after him. There are all kinds of ways that we are to deny our sinful impulses, to die to ourselves. Absolutely. I'm not contradicting that. But then there are stories like these. Um, have you ever heard of this guy, Simeon Stylites? That's a weird name. Uh, probably an even weirder dude. <laughs> uh, so he was, he was a 5th century monk who was eventually kicked out of his monastery for being sort of too austere and too ascetic and too restrictive. They basically thought he was unfit for communal life because his asceticism was so extreme, his self-denial. 
And he ended up taking on more and more kind of like extreme forms of self-denial until it culminated in him living the last 30 years of his life uh, on a tiny platform that he constructed on top of a, of a pillar. So seriously, this, this, is, this is real. There's a big pillar. He built a tiny platform where he said, I'm just going to live up there because then I'll be undistracted by the people asking me for spiritual advice, undistracted by sort of the temptations of the world, and I can be truly, you know, I can really have piety up there on top of this pillar. Um, his disciples basically, he had no plan for getting food, right? He's just, lit he's literally exposed to the elements on top of a pillar. And so his disciples started like, hoisting up, you know, kind of like plain food to him in baskets, and that kept him alive. 30 years he lived up there. Now, um, this tees up our next teaching series, which is another round of spiritual disciplines. We're going to talk about pillar living uh, soon. No, the four pillars of weird stuff up there. Um, no, okay, so... Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to tell that story to mock this guy. Um, we might be tempted to do that, but we first have to take pause, like, of the stunning conviction and, like, determination that this guy had, uh, however maybe weirdly applied, to follow Jesus. Like, let's not mock the fact that this is someone who sacrificed, let's, frankly, more than I will ever have the courage to do uh, for Jesus. So that's not the point here. But all that said there nevertheless seems to be, like, to me at least, a, a fundamental misunderstanding on his part of what the Lord requires of his people that was implicit, <laughs> implicit in this move and in this decision. Um, in, in him, there was, there was essentially this hatred and real skepticism of sort of the physical and, and like, enjoyment of, of life. A more modern example of this um, maybe, you can see if, see if it seems like a fair comparison of this, uh, we might be able to find in the extremes of the sort of 90s Christian, like, sexual purity culture. That's something I've been reading a lot about, like, people are revisiting that and exploring, like, what was good about that, what was unhealthy about that, what was mischaracterized. And for my part, I would say it, it was a movement that communicated a lot of true ideas, as well as a lot of false or bad ideas, but even the good ideas were communicated in a lot of really unhealthy packaging. And, and one of the most damaging things about sort of that whole movement, at least the most extreme forms of it, was how it often communicated to kids, um, either explicitly or implicitly, implicitly, the idea that like sex is bad, sex is ugly, sex is shameful, or, or even by extension that the human body itself is, is all of those things. Um, and this, this was kind of a primary strategy used to try to help kids pursue sexual integrity. And I want to be very clear, sexual integrity deeply matters to God. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but it was from an extremely negative angle that they tried to achieve that goal. And frankly, a lot of Christians roughly my age, and looking around the room, that's a lot of you in here, um, are, are sort of still trying to disentangle and heal from sort of the weirder aspects of, of some of this stuff as adults. Um, to be clear, like, I, the Bible has a powerfully coherent sexual ethic that claims the proper context to express sexuality is the marital covenant between a man and a woman. And as strange as that is becoming to hold in our particular view, I'm 
frankly, more and more convinced of its wisdom and its beauty. In my view, the problem with so-called purity culture wasn't that it had too high or too lofty of a view of sex or, or, or too thought it was out of whack importance of sexual integrity for Christian discipleship. The problem is that it had too low of a view of sex, I think. Um, it was an attempt at discipleship, we could call it discipleship from below through the means of a negative vision of fear and shame rather than discipleship from above, like a vision of beauty and dignified and it's inspiring and it's grace-filled. And that difference really matters when you're trying to motivate people in a way that's consistent with the gospel, in a way that doesn't do damage. Um, So whether it's 90s kind of weird church stuff or whether it's Simon Simeon stylites on top of his pillar, there are these threads that run through that just assume the physical's bad and it's somehow at odds with the spiritual. And I think this text that we're going to look at has a lot to say to dispel that, something that probably a lot of us are hanging on to. Poor buddy. That's tough. I feel like that too sometimes. Um, so let's jump in. Let's jump in. Verse 29. He's going to set up, set up the setting for us here. 29 and 30. Immediately, he, that's Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law, and to be clear, that's Peter, Simon Peter. So you can sub Peter in there. Simon Peter's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and they immediately told him about her. So two weeks ago, we, we talked about the previous passage in Mark where Jesus went into a synagogue on the Sabbath. He went to God's place on God's day, and he started teaching authoritatively in a way that people instantly recognized. People were commenting, whoa, this is a new teaching. We, don't, we never hear anybody teach with this kind of authority. Um, then he demonstrated his power and authority with a kind of an object lesson in f- casting an unclean spirit or a demon out of this man that came up to him. So he demonstrated his power and authority over the spiritual realm very powerfully in that moment. He cast a demon out. And so immediately, Mark tells us, that's one of his favorite words again and again, immediately, 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 Jesus and the disciples went to Simon Peter's house, the house that he shared apparently with his brother Andrew. And we learned that Peter was married. So uh, his mother-in-law is ill. The implication, Peter was married. Peter had a wife. And I'm just, I just pause there to instantly note, like, I wonder what she thought about all this Jesus stuff at this point, right? I mean, Simon Peter has just started following Jesus. Essentially, it was him fishing and getting a call to follow him. Peter drops everything and starts traveling with this obscure, itinerant rabbi, preacher, teacher guy. What the heck was his wife thinking about this? Maybe she's freaked out. Maybe she was frustrated, or maybe she met Jesus and thought, no, I get it. I get it. I don't know. It's an interesting question, though. So we're now at Peter's house. His mother-in-law is sick. Um, And, you know, there could be more going on here. Under the Mosaic law, uh, sickness was often considered a, a potential punishment for breaking the covenant. So a lot of times when you'd meet someone who had a fever or whatever, uh, you would assume, oh, they must have done something really bad. And that wasn't, it was never claimed that that was always why someone had a fever, but that was sometimes why someone might have a fever. Um, So here's what's going on. 
There's complicating factors for Jesus for multiple reasons that makes us ask, what is he going to do? Because if Jesus is going to touch a sick person, that would make him ceremonially unclean. The Messiah probably shouldn't be an unclean, you know, walking around ceremonially unclean. Secondarily, touching an unrelated woman would be a social offense. There was, there was a, there's a deterrent there. And then finally, it was the Sabbath. It's still the Sabbath day. Uh, and so, again, we're, you've probably heard this before. Jesus would run into conflict all the time for performing miracles and doing things on the Sabbath. People would accuse him of kind of violating the spirit of what God had um, set the Sabbath up to be. So the question is, what's Jesus going to do? Well, we've already read it. Let's keep going. He heals. He came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. And it's just worth noting, with all those complicating factors, Jesus doesn't hesitate. He just goes straight for her. He touches her. He lifts her up. He heals her. He dignifies her. He just goes straight into it. Um, and we could talk, I mean, there's so many implications of, of, of this act, but I just want to talk about a couple. First is that what we see here, something Mark, we, I mean, we've been slowly trotting through this first chapter of Mark because we think it's just so important to really take stock of each of the details of these tiny little stories that he sets up that once again are serving to illustrate the unique authority that Jesus has. Here we see a new wrinkle. We saw he's, he has power over the demons. Now we see Jesus is king. He has power. He has authority over the physical world itself, including the human body. Um, and so you might read this and think, that's outlandish. I don't believe that. That's weird. That's okay. That's the claim this text is making, that this Jesus, by the touch of his hand, can instantly cure sickness. Um, We've seen his authority over the spiritual realm. Now we see his authority over the material, the physical realm itself. Um, a second implication ties back into what, what we opened with is that in this story, we see that God, another example of the fact that God has always and always will care about the physical body and the physical world. If you go back to the first couple pages of your Bible, you'll be reminded that God created the world good, and he created people good. And he didn't create them as spiritual, ghosty things. He created them embodied people, physical bodies that you could touch. And he said, those two are good. People are a good unity of body and spirit, physical and spiritual, material and immaterial. And, and more than that, our fallenness, though sin has entered the world and messed everything up, it hasn't eradicated the dignity of your human body or mine. Um, so these healings, this healing in particular, there's going to be more as we go through Mark. It's, it's a signal that Jesus' attitude toward the physical body is not one that just says we're going to discard this. And sometimes you hear this in some, some sort of like, I don't know, sometimes Christians have this callous stance, whether it's talking about the body or talking about the material creation, like it's all just going to burn up anyway, right? And that serves as kind of a, to get you off the hook for having to exercise any sort of care over the physical things that are near you. But that's not the attitude of Jesus. If Jesus held that attitude, he sees this woman sick, he's like, it's all going to burn up anyway. That's not what he does. 
Um, in fact, th- these healings serve not only to show his power, but they're a preview of the future day when he is actually going to heal everything. When everybody, even the ones that are dead and in the grave on that day, will be raised and restored to new life. Again, not as an ethereal spirit thing, but embodied with a good, resurrected, perfect body the way his was after his resurrection. This is a signpost of that. This is just a little foretaste, a preview of what he's going to do when he puts all things right later. So love your body, friends. Um, That might be hard for most of us. It's kind of hard for me. Um, your body is not just going to burn up anyway. It's true, we're all probably going to die unless the Lord comes back in our lifetime. Um, But our future is embodied. And Jesus' body was not in the grave when it was raised. It was reconstituted and repurposed and glorified and used again. And so too will yours, we believe. Um, Your body isn't to be mistreated. It isn't to be undervalued. And this isn't a sermon about all that, but we could at least say this informs how we should think about the goodness of medicine and the, you know, the purpose of sex and what we think about drugs and alcohol and how we eat and whether or not we exercise. All those things get informed by this idea that Jesus cares. He cares about it. He dignifies it. He has a future for your body and for mine. And that's good. I think that's good. And then finally, we see those invitations, and we see her response. Um, She began to serve them. She experiences this healing, and she becomes this great example to you and to me of what we ought to do when we experience the blessing of the Lord. She turns, and she responds with service. Humble, grateful, service. And, and because we know later in Mark, this is the same Jesus who's going to say he came not to be served, but to serve. She's being more Christ-like than she probably was aware of in this moment. She was looking like him. Okay, so then what happens? Last section here, verses 32 through 34. It says, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So we see that word is spreading around Capernaum. The word is getting out. Uh, The same day he'd he'd gotten a power encounter with a demon, and he had won. Now he's he's, uh, healed this woman of her fever. I don't know if the word had gotten out about that one yet or not, uh, but we see that the word is spreading. This Jesus has unique power that nobody else has, and so, uh, so we need to come to him. Why do they need to come to him? Because suffering was widespread. And the whole city is bringing people who were sick with various diseases and people who were demon-oppressed. The ancient world was just like our world in the sense that no matter where you look, there's suffering. <laughs> People are struggling. People are sick. People are dying. People are in deep with dark spiritual stuff that they don't understand that they need to be liberated from. Suffering is all around, then and now. And you see this little wrinkle here too. That See, it says they waited, they waited until sundown to bring their people to Jesus. You know why that is? Because they didn't want to do work to carry the sick person to the Lord. 
That's interesting. That's going to come back to play later in Mark's gospel as we see exactly what the Lord has to say about that, that sort of attitude. But they wait till sundown. They wait for the Sabbath to end, and they bring the people. And what does Jesus do? Um, he did what the people asked. He healed, and he cast out. And, and he brought immeasurable, I would assume, peace and hope to these people, even if they likely didn't know enough to, you know, to be saved, ultimately, even if they didn't know enough to recognize what was before them. He served them. He cared for them. He relieved their suffering. Um, and we see another interesting thing here, too, that's going to be a theme that comes on. This is just a side note, but um, we have to remember in the synagogue story from two weeks ago, the people, it says they were kind of puzzled and amazed. They're like, this guy has teaching, but what's going on? But it was the demon who correctly identified Jesus as the Holy One of God. And we see the same dynamic happen here again. The people are bringing, they want Jesus' help. They see that he has power. But it's the demons who can't speak because they're the ones that know who he is. And we're going to see this again and again, that Jesus, Jesus is constantly encount, encounters confusion from the people that really ought to start knowing who he is. And the ones, the ones that don't, uh, the ones that do know are the ones that you would least expect. In this case, it's the demons. That's kind of a side point. Um, so that's the story. That's the story. I think it's a beautiful story. It's a story you could just breeze through when you read the scripture and not stop and say, what does this, I mean, what's the significance of this? Why of all the stories uh, that Mark wants to include, why did he include this one in here? And I think some of the things we've shared are, are part of the reason there. Um, but this raises at least one last question I want to I end with uh, because it's, as a pastor, it's a question that I encounter with, I know I've talked to some of you in this room about this very thing. And that it's painful. That question is, what is up with God and physical healing today? Like, does he is he still in this business? Does he still heal? Does he do it in general? Why didn't he do it for me when I was pleading to him for years for him to do it? And that's not hypothetical for a lot of people sitting in this room right now, I know. Um... As with everything in the Bible, you'll find a bunch of different views on this, but uh, what I believe and what Door of Hope has believed as long as I've been around um, is that we think there is no reason to believe that Jesus can't or won't physically, miraculously heal today. We don't find any reason in Scripture that would say, oh, that's just, he's, he's done, don't expect it, don't ask for it, it's not going to happen. Um, we think he, he can and, and does often heal today. We believe that we can and should pray for healing in the here and the now. Where we would distinguish what we believe from a, a lot of others that we don't believe that God is obligated to heal. And we don't believe it's just a matter of having enough faith and that he will heal every single time in every instance. That's pretty destructive, I think, to hold that. Um. I think as some background, it can be really helpful to remember that there's something I read in John Stott's little book on the Holy Spirit called Baptism in Fullness. It's a brilliant book if you've never read it. But he talks about the fact that even the Bible itself is not just a collection of miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Sometimes we think of it that way. 
But, but the miracles in the Bible tend to sort of cluster around key moments when God has new revelation to share. So there's lots of, lots of miracles happen around Moses, uh, the Exodus, the establishment of the law of the Torah up on Mount Sinai. Um, lots of miracles happen around Elijah and the prophets as they're trying to call Israel back to faithfulness. Lots of miracles happen around third, the ministry of Jesus. As Here's one right here. Jesus, has, of course, performed tons of miracles. And then lots of miracles occurred around the lives of the apostles. Um, and, and I think Stott is right when he, he says what, what these miracles chiefly serve to do is to authenticate the message that each of these people is bringing. How do we know Jesus is who he says he is? Because he demonstrated a power that no one else has. And how do we know that the apostles who were taking that message out further and further um, out from Jerusalem, that they actually were carrying truth with them because God was miraculously moving through them? And I think, at least I believe, that's why when you hear stories so often of like frontier missionaries taking the gospel to places where it is not and it has never been, that's often where you most often hear the stories of miraculous things occurring. And I think it fits the pattern. I think that fits the pattern. When God has to freshly authenticate his message to a new people, you can expect some fireworks. And that's rad. And that doesn't mean he couldn't heal here and now. It just means I don't think we expect it as the typical norm in the same way. Um, here's where it gets sad. So we believe Jesus still has complete and utter authority and power to heal through his Holy Spirit. But also, at some point, every single person's prayer for healing is going to be met with a no. Because everyone dies, right? Everyone dies. No matter how hard you're praying for someone, you might live to be 120 or whatever, but everyone dies. At some point, the answer for spare me, Lord, is no. And so we don't do ourselves or anyone else favors by pretending otherwise. But Jesus raised from the dead, right? The hope, like when, when we ask, why doesn't he just heal everyone? The answer is he's going to. He is going to. And it's not, if, he, if the answer is no now, it's not because he sits back callously like, oh, I don't care about that person or oh, I'm not going to concern myself with that. It's because he knows the whole thing is culminating to this final day when every one of those prayers for healing will be met with a deeper yes than you can ever imagine. In Matthew's account of this story, um, he specifically paraphrases Isaiah 53.4, which says, uh, when he's describing what happened here, he said, which says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And, and this verse is, is rightly most often associated with what Jesus accomplished on the cross in terms of taking care of our sin, dying in our place, uh, those sorts of things. But it also speaks of him coming into contact with our human frailty, our weakness, our sickness, and touching them and carrying them away from us. Um, that is part of what the cross has bought for us. And so stories like these in the gospel, or if we are fortunate enough to see a miraculous healing in our relationships, 
Um, what they serve is as a preview of the greater reality that Jesus is going to bring. This day that's coming um, when, when all sin, all sickness, all death is finally done with. And that does not physical life, right? It's not that physical or embodied life is done with. I'm just going to say it again because we often, we get, we get weird on that. It's not that physical life ends. Physical life gets resumed. We get resurrected back into it with him and with one another, all who have pledged allegiance to Jesus, where sin and sickness and death will become more and more and more and more distant, distant, distant memories. That's our hope. And so when you or me... (laughs) or our loved ones are battling these things and we cry out to God for healing and for help and for relief, um, we do really well to remember that whether we get it in the moment or not, a day is coming, it's really coming into real history when all those things will be given and the yes will be given. It will be deeper than you can imagine. And the great physician will finally heal everything once and for all, and you'll see it with your own eyes, your physical eyes, (laughs) your actual eyes. And the physical world that God declared good, including your body, will be transformed and rescued back into the beautiful vision he designed it to be. This is a massive part of the good news of Jesus Christ. Is that good news? Yes. If you trust Jesus, that good news is for you too. And I hope it's exciting and hope it brings you some measure of peace. Even as just like in this situation, there's suffering all around us. But he's with us and he has good ahead for us. No matter what happens in the next year, 5, 10, 30, 50, 100, he has good for you. Amen?